Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors. Today, we've got a very special episode for anyone that is trying to grow a multi property portfolio and has hit some resistance or is starting out in property investing with the goal to get to 10, 20 or 30 properties. We talked to Sam Gordon, who is a man that's done that himself and not necessarily with a big trust fund or a high income. He's done that with selecting the right assets, having the right structures, strategy and conversations with his mortgage broker to get him there. It's an awesome interview that I'd recommend to anyone that is wanting to get to the 10, 20, 30 or more property portfolio. And Sam goes through some really great tips in his affable and humble way. I'm sure you'll enjoy this one. Here's Sam. Sam Gordon, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Mike, great to be back, mate. It's been a while. It has been a little while. And I should say thanks for joining me back on Geared for Growth because we had you back in way, way back in episode research this later and edit it out. Um, it was a long way back, right? It was a but, long way um, back. But um, we've we've sort of stayed in touch here and there and, you know, it's amazing to see the success that you've had, not only with your buyer's agent but with your personal portfolio as well. And I think the, the main reason for wanting to get you for this particular episode, which is talking about being a multi-property uh, owner or a multi-property portfolio investor where we're talking about, you know, getting to the 10 and, and upwards where someone that's, say, starting out investment in investing that has the goal to get 20, 30, 40 properties maybe needs to know some of this stuff or, or someone that has, say, four or five properties that are starting to get some resistance from the banks. They don't have the appetite to give them any more money. This is where I think you are the man, the myth, the legend to be answering this question. So <laughs> with your own portfolio, oh, when did you sort of hit your first bit of resistance? Mate, I hit my first wall. It was seven properties in. So um, yep. uh, I'd, done, I'd done quite well. I think I was about probably 25-ish at the time, something around that. Uh, and I hit that first serviceability wall. And um, yeah, man, it was. I had to. I had to make a decision. It actually sat me on the sidelines for a year because I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to go down the path of, of needing to sell and having to sell. I, I kind of refused to do it for quite a while. So that was yeah. It was seven properties mm-hmm. in, man. Was where I got stuck in those mid twenties. So were you sort of thinking, all right, well, I can get past this wall by selling a certain asset and purchasing something different that will look better from a serviceability point of view? Was that was that sort of the conversation around selling? Yeah, so so obviously for that for that twelve month window, I kind of refused to do it. It wasn't until I came up um, to a broker, it, all the other brokers had kind of turned me away and said, "Nah, like there's not really anything you can do unless you sell." But they didn't really give me the scenarios of what would happen if I sold. And it wasn't until I started speaking with the broker that I work with these days, and she kind of ran me through all the numbers and, and everything. And she goes, "Look, if you sell this, you're going to get this this you know you're obviously going to you're going to profit, but then you're going to get that debt back, which we're going to be able to." put back into the market and start using again. Um, and that's where I kind of was was walked down the route of, of how we go with trust structures and start building everything out down that avenue as well. Um, but I think the really key thing was was when you sell, you get that debt back. And that, that's a big thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is once you get that debt back, that's when the doors reopen, you can start moving again. Mm. So I'm guessing you had one or two properties that had a, a, a fairly large value that you're kind of thinking, well, maybe that's great, but the the return that you were getting on those was not as good as, say, if you went and reused that debt to get, say, two or three lesser value properties. Was that sort of the the mindset? It was a bit of a mix, man, because um, 
like it was in a way, but like essentially the first property I ever bought was was Wollongong, right? From when we, we chatted it last time. Um, Wollongong yep. was the was the the first unit that I ever bought. Um, and it had done it had done quite well. I bought it in late 09. We're getting into about 2016, 2017. Sydney market was peaking out. Um, and the value, so I bought it for 275 and I, I took it to market and I was able to sell it for 525. Um, I didn't have to pay too much tax because originally it was a primary residence and then there was only a bit of CGT left, you know, for half of it that was left over as well. So I didn't pay too much tax, walked away with, it was about 210, 220, something like that, 210, 220,000. But then I got all that that borrowing back because I'd leverage it up to about 300,000 or so worth of debt, a little bit over. So I got that borrowing back. But the, the interesting thing as well was it was a low yielding asset. So a lot of the time what you'll find yeah. is you have good growth and then that growth comes up. So it's all good to try and pull that capital back out if you pull it back out and your rents haven't moved, you, you, you're dropping yourself further and further um, from a serviceability perspective. Mm. Now, when it came to the serviceability at seven problem uh, properties, what was the problem? Was it the income that you were earning was insufficient? Like you had the equity to go again, but the bank's yes. sort of saying, dude, you're only getting paid X amount a year. So at a five times multiple, you've got Buckley's. Yeah. Yeah. I think at the time I was probably on maybe 60, 70 K a year. Um, yep. But that first unit that I ever had as well, that was the lowest yielding property in my portfolio. So as I'd gone through, after I'd bought that one, I got bitten by the bug and I was doing a lot of research and everything. And uh, and I knew I started, I, I needed to build out positive cash flow. So I was doing that with the, with the deals that I'd done afterwards. The issue was um, you still reach like a DTI cap. You still reach a, a point where you're, you're, you hit that serviceability roof ceiling, right? Unless you're doing ridiculously high yields, um, you know, and, and you're probably not getting the growth at the same time, but it's just not enough. You, you hit that ceiling. So when I hit that ceiling, that's where when you, you sell it and you clear that out, get the debt back, you can start again and roll into, again, those higher cash flow deals. But this is where trust really came into it for me and, and changed the game for me as well. Yeah, and that was going to be a question I was going to ask you. So um, before we get to that one, at the seven properties, were they all with big four or did you start working with second tier lenders? They all were big four except for the last one. So pretty much everything I started with was CBA. Oh, sorry, very at the very start, I'd started with ANZ and then yep. I kind of refired a lot of stuff over and, and had majority of my stuff with CBA. And then, um, and then, yeah, mate. And then I moved it. Uh, I think I'd had one purchase with uh, with a second tier lender, and then I was capped. I was done. Mm. So that's interesting because there's a mindset that, you know, if you're working with big four and you're earning, you know, 60, 70, 80 grand, you're not going to even get to seven. So you kind of busted that myth. And then there's also a bit of a myth that you go to a second tier lender, you can basically do whatever you want. You can say, I'm going to buy a thousand properties and you just pay a high interest rate and they'll give you whatever you want. But that's not the actual reality, you say? Not really, no. So like, it, you know, it does work in essence sometimes, um, but it depends on how you structure it. And that's where trust structures came in, come in. Because when yep. you start working down that trust structure route, a lot of the time you can kind of uh, leverage with different banks in different trust structures. And that's how you can push it, you know, a little bit further along um, from that sense as well. But you still need to be running quite positive. So you can't be going out and buying, uh, you know, big chunky blue chip sort of plays or anything that's heavily, heavily negative because they don't like that and they won't lend to you on that sort of stuff. Like you'll get one done and then you'll be running negative so they won't touch you after that. Mm. Now, 
We've got to talk about the structures. And for people that don't understand what we're talking about, we'll try and sort of take it back, right? So you as Sam Gordon are an entity on paper, sort of a a heartless way to describe you. You're a lovely, (laughs) lovely person, but in essence, you're an entity, right? I am, yeah, I understand. (laughs) You can. You're an entity. Yeah, I know. We're all we're all just entities. I mean, the banks look at us in a in a very ruthless way. We're just yes. we're just we're just risks and we're opportunities, right? Yes. Um so you you are your own entity and you can create more entities that you control. You can create a company, you can create a self-managed super fund, you can create a family trust. And then, so let's say a family trust, I'm guessing, was that the first entity that you started or was it a company? Yeah, so essentially it's a discretionary trust, right? Um, and you just go, so the way that I started mine, obviously this isn't financial advice, I'm not recommending everyone go out and do any of this sort of stuff, but the way that I did mine and built mine was was I went discretionary trust with a corporate trustee. So essentially you've just got a company that's, that is trustee for the trust. So just running, essentially running it. Um, and that's, that's what takes out the borrowing and that's what, you know, takes out the loan guarantor side of things as well. Mm. And so day one, you start this trust. Mm. It goes to the bank saying, I want money to buy things. The trust is not, it has no other assets in its in its sphere of influence. So yes. how does a bank look at a trust and go, yeah, you're, you're, worth, you're worth a punt? They look at you as the individual because you're going as guarantor. But this is where when you start going down the second and third tier lending routes, it, it changes things in quite a big way. Um, because your second and third tier lenders, they don't look at you in the same way that they look at that the mainstream banks do. They they obviously fall under a different regulation, different code, banking code, yep. regular regulatory codes, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so, because you fall under that different code, um, they can lend more to you through that way. Or different banks kind of can look at you through your trust in a different way because you've left the mainstreams and you're just going guarantor on that front as well. Yeah. So you said at seven you were capped out by big yes. four and the second tier lenders, but mm-hmm. in creating that trust, the second tier lenders were able to view you in a different way or at least their regulatory framework was opened up. Is that what happened essentially? Yeah, because what, what happens is like you, you have a level of serviceability, right, um, within your own name essentially. So you, you kind of have that level of serviceability within your own name, um, which I had capped, right? I'd, I'd ridden that right to the max. I got yeah. that serviceability back when I sold the Wollongong unit. And then because I had it back, I then had borrowing to go into trust. Right. Then I go into trust and start smashing out some high cash flow deals. That's where the, the serviceability allowed me to kind of keep going on. Mm. But I think the important thing, and that's why I like a lot of people think about or, or, or they kind of talk about maybe getting into trust structures like very early on or, or sometimes even like the first deal. I, I'm not a believer in that. Um, unless you have a lot of cash and a lot of capital to work with, I prefer to like work with and build it out in personal names first until you hit those ceilings and you need to, you need to do it because it's it's more expensive. It's more laborious. Like it's, it's a slower process. There's a lot of different things to it. There's a lot of different like intricacies around it and things that you can get wrong and things you can get right and things you can get wrong. So, you know, this is obviously, I'll, I'll, and I think we're going to go back to this in a second, but like building out the person name is a great way to start until you kind of get to those points where you need to turn to trust and start building it out there as well. Yeah. And so when it came to that 
you're at the seven and you were tapped out. It wasn't that you just created a trust and suddenly it's like, oh, here's a fresh new type of Sam Gordon. Um, yes. It was like, well, you did have to sell that property and have the serviceability in your name, but yes. the combination of that and the trust meant that you were off to r the races and, and buying property in that entity, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right, mate. That's exactly how it works. Now, which is, mm -hmm. can I say as well, which is yeah. a big thing. Like a lot of people, they have in this mindset that they never sell. You hit a serviceability wall or a ceiling or you get very close to it. A lot of people 12 months ago had great servicing and now they don't have anything. And if they had a decent, because obviously all the interest rate rises they've had. Um, but if you had a decent portfolio, had a bit of growth out of one deal that hasn't had much rental growth, if you can get that back, the cash plus the, the, the debt, that's where that door can then open for you as well. Yes. I want to talk to you about asset types because that's an okay. obvious part of the, the strategy. But before we do that, you've mentioned your your broker um, and a few other brokers that were telling you, ah, Sam, like, you know, just be happy. You've got seven properties. Like, calm down, <laughs> son. You're only 20-something. But it's like, no, this is, this is not the goal. How important is it to find a broker like that? And, 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 and how protective are you? Because I've noticed a lot of investors that find a good broker, they're like, I don't want to give you their name because I want them to have time to do stuff for me. But the good yeah. ones that can navigate this world, the trust, the multi property portfolios, they seem like a, a closely guarded secret. Mate, they definitely are. It's, um, man, it's one of those things that uh, you, you want someone that's really, really good, but also someone that's not swamped. There's a lot of good people out there that are very, very busy. Um, mm. And I, sometimes I feel a bit sorry because they get a bit of a, it's, I mean, it can be the same in the buyer's agency space, you know, as well as obviously in the, uh, in the brokerage space, anything to do with I guess with the service industry, great people get busy. They can get busy. Uh, and sometimes I feel sorry for them because people are like, oh, these guys are shit. And it's like, they weren't shit. They're just really busy um, and, mm -hmm. and probably couldn't handle that that workload as well. Um, man, it's 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 hugely important. Like broker, if you would have heard this a million times before, like in, in the game of, of property investment and winning a property investment, it's 50% of doing what I do, which is, you know, buying the right property in the right market at the right price. That's 50% of it. You can go get a great deal and, and, and have this awesome asset and all the rest of it. But if you don't have the finance piece that goes with it as well and don't have correctly structured finance and build it out properly, and good luck getting past one or two, like you, you, you will get stuck. Um, you need yeah. that finance piece as well. It is definitely half of the journey. Like you look at what I started with or like when I hit that wall, if I'd taken all those guys' other advice and I hadn't been going around banging on all these doors trying to find someone to let me in, Mate, I, I, I don't know how much further past that that I'd be. I certainly would not be anywhere near where I am now. Um, but taking that step and, and finding that right person, that's what opened the doors um, for what I was able to do as well. So there's a million different hypotheticals we can go into which impact your serviceability and all that sort of stuff. You might have a company, you might have a family trust where you're minimising tax and all that sort of stuff. But were you fairly representative of your average investor? You know, there's a lot of data saying the average investor owns, you know, 80 grand or less. Were you an average sort of person up until the point you were able to get to 10, 15, 20 properties? Or is there a point where you kind of diverged and your story doesn't necessarily provide value to people listening now? The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. 
If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximize their claims and maximize their property education as well. <laughs> yeah, man, no, it's, a, it's a great point, man. It's a good question as well because obviously my portfolio is quite large now, right? Like it's 40, 40 plus in terms of property numbers. Um, so it's a great point to make because obviously, but it's been, it's been a journey as well. It's been such a crazy journey to, to get where I'm now. Man, I would have been on the, the average uh, property income up until it was 18 or 19 properties, I think it was, that I was up until that point where before I'd even started the business. So when I hit um, seven properties and I went back, I would have only been making 60, 70,000 at that point. Um, I can't remember the exact amount back in, uh, 2015 or whatever it was, 2015, 2016. Yeah. But what happened was I'd, I'd had a huge amount of equity that I made um, from from a couple of deals that I had in Sydney and then obviously this one that I sold that was down in Wollongong as well. And it was essentially taking that that capital once I'd sold the deal, taking that capital and replicating it into trust and just doing very quite advanced deals. So I, I think we discussed it when we did our original podcast, mate, going and knocking over um, unit blocks and doing renovations on those and doing small dual lock developments and stuff like that as well. So I was doing things that I was really driving, you know, above average um, returns from these deals and being able to pull majority of my capital back out, plus having a really good positive cash flow. Now, obviously, you can't start and play in that space at the very start. You have to start with deals like I like to call bread and butters. If you're the average sort of person you're talking about, starting with an average deposit, you want to build out your bread and butter style growth properties to begin with. You really start leveraging and building that equity base before you start diving into those sorts of deals. But man, I didn't make any sort of you know above average income until probably... Well, really, even in my first first year of business um, was kind of COVID, like first kind of 18 months of business was COVID. So it wasn't as if like I was, I was even doing, you know, exceptionally well or anything through that period. Um, yep. But what I decided during that period was to go down the, the route of low doc lending. Um, and so I kind of had hit a ceiling with, with even with my second and third tier lenders in personal name income. But I generated quite a large, like a substantial positive cash flow coming from the portfolio too. So I kind of combined that with like what I was making through the business, which wasn't all that much more than what I'd been making as a PAYG income earner. But I kind of combined those two amounts and went through low doc lending. Um, and you can do low doc lending if you're uh, if you're, you're like whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're PAYG or, or, or mainstream uh, or, or business owner or whatever. But going down that low doc lending, it just kind of opened a different door. Um, then, and that's when I went from around about that 20 properties up to about 30 in around about a 12 to 18 month window because I had all the capital. I'd stripped all the capital out of the portfolio before I left my job as well. So I stripped all the capital out of the portfolio, plugged it into, into more trust and then went and put that out into the market. I think the really key thing though is I invested in a time where a lot of people took the foot off the pedal, right? So like COVID, like a lot of people took the foot off. I was running the business. So I had these, these additional um, opportunities that I was seeing and I didn't have clients on the books at the time for these, for these properties that were coming through. So, you know, you're buying them at, at significant discounts. I'm doing low doc lending, but I was paying, most people were paying about 3% of the interest rates. I was paying about five, five and a half percent. So I was like taking a risk with it as well, doing things that most people wouldn't have done in that scenario. Um, so I was just thinking outside the box, knowing I was making money on the way into these things, knowing that in a few years, I'd probably, you know, hopefully have enough income from it that I'd be able to refire them um, off those low doc loans, which I have done um, and kind of going down that route. So like 100% the first call it 20 odd properties, I was still on the average Australian income, just investing yep. um, 
at a very high level, like in an intelligent way. And then beyond that, obviously, it was it was going down that different route um, through the trust of the low doc lending as well to, to really scale it from there. I, I think uh, if I can put words in our listeners' mouths, they 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 don't necessarily identify or like the stories where, hi, I'm Sam Gordon, my father invented A4 <laughs> paper and I only had $10 million to start but now I've got $100 million. Like nobody, nobody gets much out of that, right? But for people that... You know, can get to ten or twenty properties now. Now, fair enough. You've been very, very clever with the types of properties that you've done. You've you've had a lot of uh, good research. You've you know found a good broker, but you didn't you didn't require a, a, a trust fund or a three hundred thousand dollar a year job to get that. So that that's I think why I wanted to zero in on that. But let. But in talking about the cleverness, we've talked about brokers, we've talked about the structure, we've only touched a little bit on the types of property. So yes. you, you disposed of that Wollongong property, which did really, really well, but cash flow-wise, it, 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 it left you with alternative options that were better. Let's talk about yes. the sort of deals that you see as critical to getting you there. And we're talking of someone starting out on an average income, average deposit in that sort of scenario? Yeah, the, the really key thing, it always comes at like three, those three points I made earlier, those three really key parts of any sort of investment property you should be buying when you're starting. If you're starting with that average deposit, you need to build your capital base. And that's the most yep. important thing, building that equity base, building that capital base. So you want to be starting with those bread and butter, you know, gross style assets that I spoke about before. The key thing being buying in the right market. There's no yep. point getting a great deal in a shit market or a market's going backwards. That's not going to help you at all. So you want to make sure you're in the right market. You want to buy the property at the right price. You know, I'm a big believer of always making a margin on the way in, getting a discount on a property. They're always a big thing. So buy the right property at the right price in the right location with a, with a good yield, with a decent yield that's going to take care of itself. That's the really key steps, um, you know, for, for people starting out and, and really building. And you've got to have that focus on building the equity base. Too many people get, get caught up and they hung up on, on uh, you know, either chasing really high positive cash flow or chasing the next whatever um, that's out there that they've heard on a, on a, on a podcast or whatever. Um, but you've got to stick to the fundamentals, man. It, you know, you've got to stick to the, the fundamentals of what works. Don't just buy something around the corner because it's simple and easy. Like you've got to look outside your backyard, especially if you're, if you're Sydney or Melbourne or these sorts of big cities. And at different times, they will be the right places to buy in. But you've got to have that really good, clear vision across the whole country um, as to where is the best place to be putting my money in right now uh, yeah. to get you that, the best return. Because building that capital base early, it is the most important thing. If you stuff that up, you're going to have to save for another deposit. If you're on the average Australian income, it might take you another three years to save another deposit. Um, mm. And that obviously is gonna is gonna substantially hamper your your journey. And if you're trying to get to ten plus properties, that that key component is building that equity base as early as possible, so it starts to snowball and keeps building after and after. Because that compounding interest is what's going to keep you in the game and keep you building longer than anything. Yeah, and I suppose a lot of people might go into multi property investing because they want the passive cash flow at the end, right? I want to yep. have ten properties and I want to get eighty grand a year passive income. But purchasing the properties that achieve that in the beginning might be a bit counterintuitive, you're saying, because building the asset base might mean that you're getting something at a 4% yield, but that's better for you at that particular point in time. And it's only later when you say I've got a meal or two of equity, then you start looking at the, say, 6 or 7% yields. Am, am I, I'm, I'm, try, I'm guessing it. <laughs> and, and, you know, how that kind of played out for you. 
Yeah, man, I think I think it really depends. I, I don't play in the 4% yield marks. I, I don't personally um, or, or within the business because I think you can get better than that from a from a growth perspective in terms of going out and picking out the right properties that will achieve higher than that because you do still need that serviceability to keep going. Hmm. But it always depends when you need to bring it in because different people will hit the serviceability walls sooner than others. But if you can bring in a property that's going to add some serviceability or have additional cash flow that's going to not take out your serviceability, you don't want them within probably your first one or two properties, but potentially three or four, you might add something like that in there to be able to keep it, keep it flowing as well. So I wouldn't necessarily say you want it at the very back end. You just don't want to start with it. I know a lot of people, man, lately have been... Um, uh, again, just and obviously not having a dig at podcast, mate. I love yours. I've got my own podcast, Scouting Australia. Quick little plug there. Go and listen plug. to it, guys. Yep. It's great. <laughs> but um, but man, I know a lot of people that go listen to these some of these other podcasts, and they hear potentially like a, someone talking about commercial on there. And man, they they do everything they can. They go buy this first commercial asset, which is good for cash flow. But like then they're then they're stuck from a from a um, equity position, you know. It's it they get stuck and they're like, oh shit, I have to, you know. All right, I, I might make extra five, ten grand a year in terms of cash flow, but it's another five or five or so years in terms of that coming through to be able to fund another deposit. Those sorts of deals are for the back end. They're when you've got a nice big chunk of cash. You might have sold off one of your bread and butters. You've walked away with three, four hundred grand. Bang, go plunk it in one of them at the back end. Great investment, great strategy for the back end. Yep. Not at the front. At the front and at the start, you need to you need to build out that equity base. You need to keep growing that as um uh, as a priority. So you're you're in the forty plus level now, and your situation is different to, to most. You've got a very successful business. You've got you know a big a big amount behind you. But if you were starting it again from now, and let's say you're you're on an average income, which I don't know what it is these days, you know seventy nine thousand something like that. The bread and butter properties, the first three that you buy with the goal in mind to get to 10, 20, let's say, what, yep. what can you describe the perfect type of property that you would be looking at? You sort of said, you know, it needs to have a yield that supports itself, yep. but, it, you know, the equity and the upside is important. Um, so outside of getting in the location that's going to grow and yep. uh, outside of buying well and making money on the inside uh, – on the way in, yeah. What does the property look like? <laughs> so obviously, your two key points there, right? The, the first one, obviously, being we, we're making sure let, let's providing we're, we're buying in the right location. That's the yep. first and foremost thing. We're buying it at a good price. We're not touching units. Units almost always outperform the average. Uh, sorry, underperform the averages, and then a lot of the time, like overwhelmingly, not as good as housing. Um, yep. So we're buying we're buying a house. Um, if there's potential for cosmetic value adds, that's obviously that's obviously um, great or a bonus as well. We always look for little things. Where can we add this extra little bit of value? Maybe a, a conversions or all those different sort of things to add add extra things onto that property to further value boost it as well. Um, get a little bit more of an equity gain. But man, right location, right property being house at the right price, making the margin the way in, and then minimum minimum for us is absolute minimum is a 5% yield. Um, if people are starting out, you know, and, and in that bracket you're talking about there, like that ideal person, this is called 80K income, uh, man, I would be starting in like a three to $400,000 bracket and window right now in terms of the purchase price of a house. Um, and I probably would be targeting like 6% plus as a yield on an asset like that. Yep. Three or 400. Um 
depends on when people are listening to this, but we're talking early 2023. That's not a lot of money. Where where are those deals? And there would be people that say they're only the back of Burke, it's risky, the quality of tenant is no good. You know, we're talking all of those, um, you know, all of those. You yeah, I'm, 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 I'm devil's advocate here, Sam. Um, those deals are around and then, and you know, you can find properties for that price? Yeah, definitely. Like people who are making a little bit more, you'd probably open it up potentially to like the three to $500,000 bracket, right? Like you'd increase yep. it a bit. But I, mean, I can tell you right now, um, you've got Brisbane. So we're talking early 2023. You've got Brisbane, you've got Perth, you've got Adelaide. You've probably still got Hobart. Hobart's a bit cooked, but, but you've got yep. Brisbane, Perth, and Adelaide. All three capital cities have opportunities sub $400,000 in their housing markets for houses. And then yep. you've got, man, a multitude of good quality, solid regional markets that are also priming up for a big boom or they're already on their way through or have just started um, a great growth run as well. So obviously, mate, you and I are both um, circa Sydney radius, you know, so, so we're used to house prices that it's it's almost unusual to be not starting in the millions, um, yep. which is which is our normality now. But, but from an investment perspective, there's so many other opportunities out there and they're in my opinion, so much better opportunities than than going buying in Sydney at a million bucks with a three or four percent yield, um, and and yeah, bleeding on the cash flow when you're probably in an overcooked market that that doesn't, in my opinion, have all that much potential for growth, if any, for the next mm. potentially five to ten years. So you've got to open your eyes and, and have a look, you know, beyond your borders at what else is is possible and achievable, and it may not be that far away from where you're thinking as well. Interesting on that, I've got stuck on the wall which is a different interview that i did but the average distance that where people uh invest from where they live oh, yeah. so in mm -hmm. terms of kilometers 2019 293 kilometers so these are yeah, all the right. clients that come to us for a residential okay. depreciation schedule it was yeah. 293 kilometers average in 2019 2020 21 559 kilometers so that's surprising that's that's mm. that's quite a long way so i think People are, they're obviously listening to you, mate. They're, they're going, you know what, this is a bloody big country. 500 k's is not a long distance in far. Australia, right? You can go 3,000 no. kilometres and you're still <laughs> in Australia. We, we think most people, right, like like your two biggest centres are, are Sydney and Melbourne. Um, and if you, I mean, yeah, they've had another nice little run the last, you know, in, in, in 2020, 2021, whatever. Um, but like you look at it, those two big centres where half of the country's population is, if you're going from either of those to Adelaide or to Brisbane or to Tassie or to bloody Perth, three and a half thousand k's away, like you're stretching out your averages. And so you should. It, they're unaffordable markets, Sydney and Melbourne, um, with terrible yields. They've had a great they've had a great run. If you own property there five, 10 years, probably 10 years ago, you would have had the best run. You're buying in early 20 teens and whatnot. You would have had a great run through there. But now they're cooked markets. You know, there's other places to be looking and to, and to be capitalizing on. And Sydney and Melbourne will have their time again, but they're not the right market. So yeah, exactly what you're saying, mate. More people are getting more and more open to it. Um, and it's good because that's where the dollars are to be made. Yeah, and the average person can't service a, an investment property anywhere in, in Sydney, right? So they're mm. priced out of it whether they think it's a good fundamentals or not. Talking yeah. about the fundamentals, I just want to want, ask you one last question because I know Go you're a busy me. man. Um, <laughs> how, when you're looking at a market, you, you know, you talked about buying well. That comes down to negotiating and, and all that sort of stuff. That's a different show. Yes. Um, but... When you're when you're looking at markets where you're you're wanting to buy um, 
in a in a rising market or an about to rise market. I mean, that's the that's the shortest way to accelerate your asset base is to buy at the right time. You know, like people say, it's better to have time in the market than to time the market. But you can definitely do both, right? Definitely do both. And what I don't is know which one I pick every day of the week? Mm, yeah. But sorry, mate, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. So I want to know, what is it that you look for? Are, are there key metrics? I mean, are you trolling infrastructure announcements? Are you looking at days on market? Are you looking at vendor discounting? I mean, how much of the secret herbs and spices can you give us? How many did Colonel Sanders give out? I think he had seven. <laughs> he had seven. I think he gave one, and that was chicken. <laughs> yeah, right. But I think it was actually leaked. I think I think a disgruntled employee leaked it, and and one of the ingredients was MSG. Oh so, no! Fancy yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> no, nah, mate. Look, it's um. So a couple of the the indicators you're talking about there, like your days on market. Um, I can't remember. I can't remember the other one you you were talking. Vendor about. discounting. Yeah, man. Those sorts of things. They're they're great indicators to be to be looking at. But if you're trying to time the absolute bottom or get in before it has any growth, they're lag indicators and you've missed that bottom part of the market. So as they start tightening up, you've, you've, if that's what you're tracking, you've missed the bottom part of the market. It's great. And there's nothing wrong with missing the absolute bottom, especially in the current property market. There's almost nowhere that's worth investing in that hasn't had a little bit of growth over the last couple of years. So they're okay, but they're not your best. Um, the biggest one I like to look at, especially in the current market, is affordability. Um, yep. Yeah, a lot of people, they harp on about the blue chip and oh, this area has had its great, consistent, long-term growth. Like, throw it in the bin. That's the exact thing I don't want to buy in. I don't want to buy in something that's had consecutive 10 years of 10 to 15% growth. Like, that's a recipe for, for disaster in this current market with interest rates because they're, they're super inflated, they're overheated. Um, they've got that room and that potential to come back, especially when interest it's, it's literally just, it's that dynamic of, well, it's no longer affordable, that affordability comes back. People can't afford to pay as much, so they come back. On the flip side of that, if you're looking for the areas that are still affordable and still have room and growth left in the tank, um, the big thing as well is that's actually where so many investors are targeting because they're still at a low price point. The yields are still strong. They're getting additional demand from that. Um, so they're, they're kind of, that's probably the, the big lead indicator that I like to look for at the moment um, across the country in this current environment for, for good, solid short-term growth. Um, short to medium-term growth is that affordability factor. Um, yep. That's a big one. Infrastructure projects, 100%, is a huge one. Uh, big projects and big spends coming into an area, especially if we're talking regional markets and whatnot as well. Um, for one, they can completely change the dynamic of a market and, and make it a really good long-term fundamental market where previously it may not have been. Um, but it also might just solidify a market that you think ticks all the other boxes on. And great, there's another couple of big projects coming in as well. Yeah. So they're probably like your two big ones and your population shifts and your population growth as well. If somewhere's being smashed and, and there's a big influx of people, um, combined with stock on market and also stock coming to market, like your inventory of land and whatnot kind of coming through. If those two things are constrained and you've got a nice big population growth of people running into the area as well, um, that is a recipe obviously for, for, for market price and for movement too. Yeah, good. I guess we're, we're looking at everything that's pointing to scarcity of, of resource in, in the future. Uh, there's, Sam, a few, there's a few Colonel Sanders uh, secret herbs for you. That's good. None, and none of them were MSG. So no none of them. None of them. <laughs> I, could, uh, I think we could talk for another couple of hours, but we might have you back if that's all right, Sam. Thanks very much for, for coming on the show and, and sharing uh, all, that, uh, all the wisdom that's got to you to where you are today. 
Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it, mate. Always good jumping back on, man. And uh, yeah, happy to jump on again anytime, buddy. Beautiful. We'll have you. Cheers. Thanks, bud.